Now, folks, this service is uh, designed, obviously, to be a Thanksgiving service. And speaking for all of the staff, we wish you and your family a very happy uh, Thanksgiving this week. Safe and happy Thanksgiving. I do want to let you know, before we proceed with the service, if you did not receive one of these cups, as Kevin mentioned, if you would... Uh, Step out into the lobby. I see Dennis coming with a basket full of them. If you want to raise your hand, if you did not get one, again I remind you who is the Lord's service of uh, the Lord's Supper for? It's for baptized believers. Uh, communion is for baptized believers. If that's you uh, and you did not get one of these, please raise your hand. And I want to go over something quickly. You'll notice on the top of it, it actually has two seals. And take them off one at a time. The, the topmost seal is clear cellophane. That one will come off pretty easily. And it will expose the bread wafer. Now, the staff and I have worked hard all week long stamping out the bread wafers out of styrofoam coffee cups. <laughs> when you taste it, you may not think I'm kidding. But anyway, then the next seal, of course, is a foil seal. And that was a little tougher. Be careful so the person in front of you doesn't wear your grape juice. But uh, if you need help with that too, someone, uh, there'll be ushers and staff members around to help you at the end. So just remember, two seals, okay? I want us to look this morning at the greatest of all reasons for Thanksgiving from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Now, folks, in the Greek text, believe it or not, this is only one sentence. It's the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament, verses 3 to 14. English translations will divide it up into as many as eight different sentences. I'll be reading this morning from the uh, ESV. And I want you to also notice how Trinitarian this doxology or this blessing is. It focuses on the work of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk this morning about how all the members of the Trinity have been conspiring together for our salvation. And we can be so grateful for that. So would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Father, help us to see today how rich that we are in Christ, how spiritually rich. And Lord, it's not because of what we've done, but it's because of what you have done. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together for the salvation of your children. And blessing us far beyond anything that we could obtain in this world. Lord, in a year like 2020, help us to see the blessing we have in Jesus Christ our Lord that we would be a thankful people regardless of the circumstances around us. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, she has gone down in history as America's greatest miser. And yet when she died in 1916, Hetty Green left an estate valued at nearly $200 million. Now, in 2020's figures, that would mean that she had almost $5 billion in the bank. But she ate cold oatmeal because she didn't have to pay to heat water to heat up the oatmeal. She wouldn't need anything that she had to cook. She had a single black dress and undergarments that she wore and would not wash because of the cost of washing it. Now on occasion when she did allow a lady to wash her garments, she would only allow the lady to use soap on the hem of the dress, reasoning that the hem of the dress would be the part of the dress that would be the dirtiest. She was so vastly wealthy that on a number of occasions, New York City turned to Hetty Green to loan them money so that the city of New York would not go bankrupt. Some things never change. <laughs> Her son had to suffer a leg amputation because she delayed so long in looking for a free medical clinic that his case became incurable and they had to remove his leg. 
Hetty Green was wealthy beyond measure. But she chose to live like a pauper. You might say how foolish. Yes, indeed, she was foolish. But she's an example of many believers today. They have limitless wealth, spiritual wealth, at their resources, at their disposal, and yet they live like spiritual beggars. It must have been to people like this that Paul was writing this doxology. Look at how he begins in verse 3. It is a statement of thanksgiving. Paul is essentially saying, I will bless the Lord. I will, I will give thanks to him. I will sing of his greatness. And here's why. Paul is giving a eulogy. That's the word that is used here. The word blessed is eulogetos. We get our word eulogy from this. You know what a eulogy is. We hear eulogies at funerals. A eulogy is a praise of somebody's life and a praise of their activity. Incidentally, though, do you know that in the New Testament, a eulogy is never used directed toward men. Eulogies are always directed towards God. Praises for God and his blessings. That's what Paul is doing here. He is delivering a eulogy of praise to God. And what he's showing here is how all the members of the Trinity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are conspiring together to make believers spiritually wealthy. Let's see, first of all, what he has to say about blessings from the Father. Pick up reading with me again in verse 4. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul is speaking here about how the Father in eternity past set the whole plan of redemption in motion. And he mentions several things here specific that the Father has done. First of all, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That explains why we are blessed. Folks, we cannot possess the blessings of God by force. That's what Satan tried to do. We might try to earn these great blessings, but heaven's blessings have to be bought with heaven's coinage. And we don't have such. Perhaps we can inherit these blessings when the owner dies, but the owner is the eternal God of the universe who never dies. Then how can we become possessors of what God has to offer? God has offered these blessings to his children strictly by his unmerited favor. Notice he's given us spiritual blessings, not material, although God gives us material blessings as well. But that's not the focus here. 
And you know, if we tried to put the two up against one another, material blessings and spiritual blessings, what we have in Christ in the heavenlies is so much greater. You can't even measure spiritual blessings. Now I want you to notice also that we receive these blessings in Christ. That is a phrase that occurs over and over again. In the book of Ephesians alone, it occurs some 30 times, more than in any other book. And what is Paul saying? Paul is saying it is in Christ and through Christ that God blesses his people and works in the lives of his people. People want God's blessings apart from Jesus Christ, but the Word of God tells us that it is only in Christ and through Christ and through Christ alone that we receive God's blessings. Those outside of Christ know nothing of these blessings we're speaking of this morning. Now, secondly, about the Father's work, Paul points out here that he has chosen us. One of the doctrines in the Bible that we must affirm because it shows up constantly on the pages of Scripture is election. And it's pointing out that God is always the one who initiates man's salvation. To deny that would be to deny Scripture itself. Now, men still have the responsibility to believe, and that's what Paul is going to say in verse 13. He says, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so we affirm both the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility to repent and believe. Charles Spurgeon once said that walking through heaven's door, as you're walking up to heaven's door, over top the door frame, as you enter in, you're going to look there, and the words are going to be, whosoever will may come. And because of Jesus Christ, we walk through heaven's door. And then we turn around and we look at what's written on the door frame above and on the inside, and it's going to say, you who have been chosen from the foundation of the world. Folks, we affirm both. Because both aspects are firmly rooted in scripture. But just imagine this. Go back to the foundation of the world. Before the creation of the world even. Before there was an earth. Before there was a man. In fact, before anything existed except God himself in his complete and holy state. Even at that point, God had man in mind. And as he had man in mind, he had redemption's plan in mind. God already knew that man would sin given the choice. And that man would become alienated from God. And man would need redemption. He would need salvation. God knew all of that before he took the dust of the earth and created the man and breathed a soul into the man. In fact, he knew it before he created the dust itself. John says in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 that Jesus Christ has been crucified from the foundation of the world. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't some last-minute thought. And again, as God thought about man, he thought about man needing to be reconciled to him. And so he chose how this would be done. 
I'm just hitting highlights this morning. We don't have time to go through this passage in detail. But he determined it would be done through his perfect, sinless son, the Lord Jesus. Paul says here, he chose us in him. There's that phrase again, in him. He chose us to be reconciled to himself in him, in Christ. Remember what Jesus told his disciples? He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Man's free will, since Genesis 3, is in bondage to sin. As Paul says in Romans 3, without God's activity in us first, no one, not even one, would choose God. We see why we have been chosen. Paul says here, you're chosen to be blameless and holy before him. Christians are chosen to be a peculiar people. We're to be different from the men and women of the world. Now look still at a third blessing here from the Father. He predestined us for adoption as sons, Paul says in verse 5. The word predestined refers to setting a boundary. It's the word from which we get the word horizon. And then you add to that the prefix in Greek that, that would come over in English, pro, meaning before. And so in his sovereignty, God set a boundary like building a fence around something. God chose us and predestined us. Out of this election and predestining comes the adoption as sons. And again, this was through Christ. Jesus is God's only begotten son. And through Jesus Christ, we become adopted sons and daughters in God's family. And when you're adopted into God's family, you enjoy all the rights and privileges of being God's child. To be adopted into God's family means that we become his children. And, and we, everything he said that he is going to do for his children in his word, he will eventually do. Folks, it strikes me that when we begin talking about these matters, election, predestination, adoption, it's intended to bring a great deal of security to the believer. Because God is pointing out you were on the Father's heart and mind before you were even made. You were not some afterthought. And you were chosen for a purpose. Privilege, yes, but God doesn't save us just so we can sit back and personally enjoy it for ourselves and not do anything with it. Paul points out here, you're chosen for a purpose just as Moses was chosen for a purpose, you were. Just as Elijah was chosen for a purpose, you are. Just as Simon Peter and all the saints of the Bible were chosen for a purpose, so you are as well. You have been saved and chosen for a purpose for God's holy purpose. And one of the purposes is stated right here in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Your life as a chosen and redeemed child of God is to give God glory. And that's why Paul could say to the Colossians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Your life and my life is to be a portrait 
of God's amazing grace. Folks, you are not a person in this universe without a purpose. God set his affection on you for a reason. For eternal purposes. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See what Peter's saying there about being elected and chosen and predestined for a purpose? He points out that we've been chosen to be a priesthood, a royal priesthood. Priests represent people to God and God to people. You're a priest. You're to intercede for the lost and the hurting and to minister to people. You're like an Ezekiel, a watchman on the wall that God has placed there. We're not priests in the sense that people go to God through us because there's only one priest, one high priest in that sense, Jesus Christ. But we're all priests in the sense that we're to represent him in this dark and dying and lost world. That's the reason you've been chosen. And Peter points out here, you're chosen to be a vessel for the Lord. Here again, thinking of 1 Peter 2 and how it lines up with what Paul's saying here. You're a people for God's own possession. And that means if God says go, you go. If God says speak, you speak. Like Isaiah who said, here am I, Lord, send me. You're chosen to be a witness. Peter says to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you're the people of God. Blessings from the Father. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to talk in verses 7 and following, blessings from the Son. Notice what he mentions in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. I want you to notice again that we find the words in him, in Christ. In Christ we have redemption. Present tense. Even now we enjoy this blessed state of being set free from the penalty of sin. One day we'll be set free from, from even the presence of sin. But in Christ we've been redeemed and set free from power and penalty of sin. Now this word redemption is one of the great words in the Bible. It refers to a setting free, a, a deliverance, ne never ever to be enslaved again because the debt, the ransom has been paid. In the New Testament world, it's estimated that there were some six million slaves. If a slave ever had any hope of being free, somebody had to pay the ransom price for him and set him free. And there would be legal papers showing this. Well, the Bible makes clear you and I were slaves. We were captives. We were captives to sin. And in our, in, in our unredeemed state, Paul says that sin was our master. 
and that the wages of sin is death. Unredeemed man was also captive to Satan. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, Satan has blinded the mind and the eyes of the unbeliever. Ephesians 2, Paul says, we were children of wrath. We were children of disobedience. And we were helpless to get out of this state. You could say, in essence, we were on Satan's chain gang. Captives to him. Without hope, without life, dead in trespasses and sins. The tyranny of sin reigning over us. We owed a debt that we could not pay. And so we had no future at all. And Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, stepped out of the glories of heaven. And he went to the rugged cross. And he redeemed you and me. He paid the ransom for you, your soul. In him we have redemption through his blood. He didn't redeem us with silver or gold, but with his precious blood. His death on the cross satisfied the demands forever of a holy God. And in Christ you're set free. You're not in bondage. You're under Christ's rule and Christ's reign and his authority in your life. He forgives us, Paul says here in verse 7. Our trespasses have been forgiven. The meaning is uh, ascending away. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of that scapegoat in the Old Testament. Remember the scapegoat? How they would confess their sins over that scapegoat. And then that scapegoat would be sent away, bearing their sins. That was an Old Testament snapshot of what God was going to do in Christ. In Christ, our trespasses have been sent away, never to be held against us again. Why? Verse 8 says, because of God's grace that he lavished upon us. Lavished upon us. God's not a miser with his love. He's not stingy with his love. I'll tell you what I think most of you know. That on staff, nobody loves a good hamburger like Kevin Knight. I mean, that boy could eat hamburgers three meals a day, I think. You ever notice some of these hamburger commercials? I mean, they're just mouth-watering, aren't they? I mean, you see the bun and all the trimmings on it, all the stuff in that big old hamburger cheese melting over. I mean, it makes you so hungry, you want to get in the car at lunch and go get one of those burgers, and you go down to that place that was featured in that commercial, and you get that burger, and you're kind of like that little old Wendy's lady back in the, what, 80s? Where's the beef? I mean, you open it up, and it's in there, but man, they've been stingy with it. But that's not how God is. He's done this for us in Christ because he's he lavishes his love and grace and mercy on us. He's not a miser. He's also communicated to us, verse 9. He's made known the mystery of his will. Now, folks, have you ever been left out? Have you ever been the odd man out? And everybody around you seemed to know what was going on, but you didn't. 
It's like a secret they didn't let you in on. God's will was a, a, a mystery, but he's let us in on his plan. The Bible asks who's ever been God's counselor. Who's ever known the mind of the Lord? Without God revealing his plan, we couldn't know. It'd be a complete mystery. But God, because of his grace, he's let us in. He's given us his word. He sent his prophets. He sent his son. He's given his Holy Spirit. And today we sit here in church with the Bible in our hands and we're able to read it and we're able to know and understand God's unfolding plan through the ages. When that word mystery is used by the Apostle Paul, normally what he means, the mystery of God's plan, the unfolding of God's plan from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, culminating in Christ. And then in Christ, Paul taught the mystery of how God has broken down that wall of division between Jew and Gentile. And, and Jew and Gentile, we make up one family in Christ. The mystery of God's will. And God's made that known to us. He also talks about, in verse 11, how the Son, he gives us an inheritance. Because of his death on the cross, because of his shed blood, we have obtained an inheritance. The tense there is, it's future, but it is as good as done. Peter says of that in 1 Peter chapter 1, we have an inheritance in heaven. It's reserved for us, and we're reserved for it. Gracious, awesome inheritance because of Jesus Christ. But then thirdly, I want you to see blessings from the Spirit. Look at verse 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What's the Spirit? What, what has the Spirit done? He is God's seal upon us. A seal was a sign of ownership in the ancient world. It, it was a brand, for instance, that you would put on your animals, showing that they belonged to you. Or it was a special seal that you would put on letters, letting the person know that the contents of the letter were from your hand and not somebody else's. In addition to being a sign of ownership, it represented authority. Remember when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den? King Darius, along with his nobles, placed their seals on the stone that was placed over the entrance to the den so that nothing might be changed in regards to Daniel. A seal was a mark of authority. It was also a mark of security. Once something was sealed, even the one sealing it couldn't simply revoke it. Remember the laws of the Medes and the Persians in the book of Esther? When the Jews had been consigned over to death and, and the king, King Ahasuerus, had had signed the edict and put his seal on it. When Mordecai and Esther exposed to him what was happening and he wanted to reverse what he'd done, he couldn't because he'd issued an edict and put a seal on it. He couldn't undo that previous edict. He had to issue a new one with a new seal. 
A seal was a mark of security. And it was a mark of authenticity. You would know that it was sealed by that particular king. What Paul is saying here when somebody comes to Christ, God has his seal of ownership, authority, and security upon him. It's his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit. He guarantees us of more to come there in verse 14. He's like a down payment. Earnest money. You buy a house and you put a down payment, earnest money. If you back out of the deal, you lose your earnest money. God's put his seal, his Holy Spirit on, on the believer. If he were to back out of it, which he isn't going to do, it's like some... Like somehow or another, he would lose himself because what's his seal on you? His Holy Spirit. His Spirit. He can't renounce that. So again, it's his down payment of more to come. Paul says in Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified he also glorified. There's more to come for the believer. Amen? And so again, he's pointing out here, through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead has been at work to lavish blessings upon those who are his children. So in that sense, are you rich? Absolutely. Folks, when we look around in a world that it seemed like in 2020, a little bit of everything's going wrong, isn't it? I mean, just this whole year for people has been such a trying year on all kinds of fronts. And sometimes you struggle to see good in life. Well, folks, we can look at a passage like Ephesians 1 and we can see good in life. Amen. I want you to see today that you are spiritually wealthy beyond measure. Spiritually wealthy beyond measure. You've been chosen. You've been chosen to be God's children, a royal priesthood. God has lavished his love upon you, his love and grace and mercy. He, he, he's not a miser. He hasn't measured it out to you and me in small doses. He's He's lavished it upon you. You're rich in Christ. If you don't have a penny to your name, you are rich in Christ if you're, if you're in Christ. Now, if you're not in Christ this morning, again, I remind you that all of these blessings come to us in and through Christ. And so you're not included in what's being talked about here. You need to come to Christ. If God's been convicting you of your sin and need of a Savior, guess what? That's his work in you, his initiating work, drawing you into a relationship with you, reconciling you to himself. Come to Christ. Come to him and you're adopted into his family with all the rights and privileges 
But again, folks, don't forget the blessings that you have in Christ. We go through this world experiencing trials and tribulations and bad circumstances, and, and we let those things rob us of our hope and take our eyes off of what matters most. And the New Testament is telling the child of God, keep your eyes, keep your focus on Him, because if you keep your focus on Him and the blessings you have in Christ, there's nothing in this life that you can't endure. You can make it through, because you're Even if you don't make it through, guess what? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So you make it through. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for this opening doxology in the book of Ephesians. We just barely touched on things this morning. But Lord, help us to see your activity your great love. It's not something that just came along at the last minute. It's been from the foundation of the world. You've chosen us. Father, I pray that as your people that we will never get over what you have done for us. we would always remember our first love. That we would draw near to you. And that this week of Thanksgiving, when we think of our blessings, that we would think first and foremost about what Paul is saying right here in Ephesians 1. Lord, for the one discouraged this morning, depressed, lonely, isolated, Remind them of who they are in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation.
that you do not have um, a bread wafer and a cup of juice, would you raise your hand so an usher can get to you quickly? Anybody upstairs? Okay. If you'll take a moment to go ahead and do as I asked earlier. Corinthians 11 verse 23 he says for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Sobering words. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and just a time of personal preparation as you deal with your heart and life before the Lord and prepare yourself to partake, not in an unworthy, but a worthy manner. Father, we know it's very clear in the scripture that those who confess the name of Christ are to be different. If we're saved, we're to be different. John says in 1 John, if we're not different, if 
we don't love your word and your commands and love one another and love your truth and walk in the light. John says we lie. We don't know and we don't practice the truth. So very clearly there's a change that is to be evidence of your work in us because your Holy Spirit, your seal is upon us. And you've made us a new creation in Christ. Lord, I pray that each of us could look at the overall pattern of our life and see that change. We stumble from time to time. We sin. John says if we say we don't, we're a liar. But we're not under the mastery or the tyranny of sin anymore. That's the difference. But Lord, wash us where we have failed and come short. Wash us and make us clean. Fill us afresh and anew with the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to live the Christian life. You live your life through us as we walk through a dark and a dying world. Lord, we thank you for what you've done to redeem us, to make us your people, and the promise of more to come. May we be grateful for that and live in light of it every day. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Scripture says, when he had given thanks, he'd taken the bread and given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. But all those sacrifices of animals in the Old Testament, God was giving us a foreshadowing of the perfect sacrifice that he would make in his son one day. A sacrifice that never needed to be repeated because it would be once for all complete Jesus said, this cup is that new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, folks, what we've just done, there's, there's a preaching aspect through taking part in this ordinance. 
because we're demonstrating where our hope of salvation is. It is only in Christ and what he did at the cross. You can't partake of the Lord's Supper if you're truly partaking and think that somehow or another you can earn heaven yourself. That would be contrary to what the ordinance is all about. Because the ordinance is a confession through action. My only hope for salvation in heaven is because of what Jesus has done. So it's a proclamation of hope. And that's what you've done. Would you stand